This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Galaxies we hear, all right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me This, season four. Um, for folks who are new to the podcast, this is a podcast about all things belonging, community, connection, collaboration, and just holding space for what's possible. Over the life of this pod, we have explored research and scholarship on or related to belonging, shared stories, listened and engaged with diverse individuals about belonging during the pandemic, as parents, as leaders, as human beings who show up for all the things. This season, we are journeying into belonging in our relationships, friends, spouses, coworkers, neighbors, clients, all the relationships that you can possibly think of. And today we are so excited to welcome Drs. Nicholas Cuneo and Dr. Nuf Bazaz. Thank you both for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about the work that both of you do. So by way of introduction, Dr. Cuneo is an assistant professor of pediatrics and medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine with a joint appointment at the Johns Hopkins Blueburn School of Public Health, where he is affiliated with the Center for Public Health and Human Rights and the Center for Humanitarian Health. In addition to his work as the co-founding medical director of HEAL Collaborative, Dr. Cuneo works as an academic hospitalist for children and adults at Johns Hopkins Hospital and provides full-spectrum pediatric care at the Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He currently serves as the co-lead of the National Asylum Medicine Training Initiative. Nick also has extensive global research, health research and program management experience, particularly in Haiti, where he was a Harvard Medical School Doris Duke International Clinical Research Fellow in South Africa, where he was a Fulbright Research Fellow in Public Health. Nick is a graduate of Harvard Brigham and Women Hospital, Boston Children's Hospital Medicine Pediatric, Re- Pediatric Residency, and served as Chief Resident for the Doris and Howard Hyatt Residency in Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women Hospital. He earned his BS in biology and anthropology at Duke, his MD at Johns Hopkins University, and his MPH in clinical effectiveness at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Good grief, Nick. How do you have time for all of this? So I just, Rianne, I know you're going to introduce Dr. Bazaz, but I'm just so impressed always with our guests' backgrounds and work. And I will just say, Nick, um, I'm in Massachusetts, so I'm not that far from places that you have found yourself. So uh, yeah, well, I, I grew up in Massachusetts, so awesome. I, it's dear to my heart. Yeah, thank you so oh, much. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, Brian, you want to introduce Dr. Bazaz? Yeah, so throwing it back to me here in Maryland. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dr. Nuf Bazaz is a clinical assistant professor at Loyola University, Maryland, and HEALS co-founder and mental health director. 
Her clinical work, research, training, and consulting focuses on trauma, torture, grief, and loss with survivors of war, violence, and persecution, as well as on culturally responsive care for Muslim youth and families. Dr. Bazaz was the program director of a mental health agency in Maryland, serving refugees and immigrants from the Middle East, South Asia, and Northeast and West Africa, a program which she built from the ground up. She's developed integrative community mental health programs in schools and communities around the state. In her clinical and broader psychosocial work, Dr. Bazaz has served diverse refugees, queer and trans asylum seekers, BIPOC youth, incarcerated males, survivors of sexual trafficking, indigenous women, and more. At Loyola, she served as an equity and inclusion faculty fellow from 2020 to 2021. Dr. Bazaz holds a PhD in counseling from George Washington University and an MA in trauma and violence transdisciplinary studies from NYU. She's been shaped by her work as an artist, arts activist, and former work as a doula. Dr. Bazaz is from Kashmir and raised in New York, but has lived and worked in the DC, Maryland area for 15 years. Wow. <laughs> this is going to be an awesome conversation. I'm super excited. It is. I feel like we're covering New York, Massachusetts, right. Maryland. We've, we've got all the things. Kakemir. Yeah, which is actually, that's funny because I'm from New York too, right? So we've got this whoop kind of, nice. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so before we get into your really important work and discussion of belonging, we always like to just start off with asking how you are. So how's it going? How are your families? How are things today? No, if we could start with you. Sure. Um, oh, it's, I don't know. It's a it's a good Monday. We'll see where the where the work leads us, where the week leads us. Um, but so far, feeling good. Awesome, Nick. How about you? I'm I'm doing okay. I was actually a little bit sick over this weekend, so I'm recovering mm. from that. Uh, always a little bit of a bummer, but um, but yeah, feeling much better now. So that's that's a positive, and um, you know, excited for this week. So. Awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's a weird. I feel like it's a weird year coming through COVID now that we're not wearing masks. It seems like more people are getting sick. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Remembering what it's like to to get colds during COVID. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So, so as we said in the beginning, this is a podcast about belonging and I'm really excited um, to hear from both of you, particularly in the context of your work. And as we get started, Nuf and Nick, I'm curious just because I want to be really respectful of the individuals and families you work, work with. When you speak of your work, do you refer to them as clients, as, as individuals? Like, is there a way that I should be referring? I'm just wondering. It sort of depends on the situation for me. Um, okay. For, for me, I do have some some patients. Um, okay. I, you know, I see in primary care clinic uh, as part of our Survivors of Torture grant. Um, mm -hmm. And so... I call them my patients because I'm their primary care physician. Got it. Um, but in our asylum clinic or our forensic evaluation clinic, as we call it, uh, we we refer to folks as clients because it's not actually a medical service that we're providing. It's a legal service. And okay. so there's a technical distinction there. Okay. Noof has her own. <laughs> <laughs> and then for me, also with my counseling, with my counseling clients, I also refer to them as clients. Okay. Okay. You know, I just, since this is a podcast on belonging, I think it's really important that we clarify, right, that we're not calling some, we're seeing the people for who they are. So maybe perhaps just for our conversation, even Nick, with your, your saying patients, maybe client feels okay, understanding that there are some circumstances where it'll be different. So, um, so as we get started, um, I, we, we always, speaking of language, love to start from a place of understanding each other's perspectives. And so I'll ask both of you, when you think of this word belonging, 
I'd love to hear sort of definitions and also how you, the work that you do and your experiences inform how you think about this word and construct belonging. So Nick, you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. I think belonging is really at the heart of what we are hoping to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's in my, you know, <laughs> developing understanding of it. It really means feeling part of a larger community um, and feeling communion with the folks uh, you're connected to. Um, and I think from from a, a professional standpoint, you know, belonging has always been something that I've really strived to uh, to be a, um, a central part of like what I do professionally because I have realized that I am much happier working in teams so I think of belonging as being you know part of a functional team where you feel like uh, you're all working towards a sort of similar goal and, um, and can understand you know each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt uh, and then in our, our work with clients, um, you know, who are coming from all over the world, from different cultures, often from, uh, you know, unique identities that have been marginalized and their, uh, you know, their, their cultures back home, for example, LGBT, you know, they have struggled with belonging and, you know, we are seeing them in this very vulnerable moment where they are having to disclose some of the worst memories they have. Um, and so trying to create a sense of, um, of, you know, connection with them um, and not, you know, sort of further alienate uh, them in that experience of disclosure uh, is really, you know, an essential part of, uh, I think, providing trauma-informed um, care and trauma-informed uh, you know, uh, services. Yeah. I guess uh, before enough, before you answer, I, I, um, I want to loop back. So I, I don't want to make assumptions. Um, most of our audience may not know the work that you do. And so it would, I think it would be important that we start there. Um, you know, given what Nick was saying about belonging and struggling with belonging and where clients are coming from. So, you know, Nuf, could you start us off and maybe Nick, you could add sort of just talk about, you know, the partnership you have together, the work that you're doing, just to give everybody some some place to start in terms of an anchor. Yeah, absolutely. So the Heal Refugee Health and Asylum Collaborative is this partnership between, um, well, he is the acronym, um, H for Hopkins, E for one of our community partners, the Esperanza Center, A for Asylum Women Enterprise, and then L, of course, for us here at Leola. And so this, the idea behind it is that we're bringing these community agencies, these universities together to provide services for the, like for the refugee community here in Baltimore, but in particular, those who are seeking asylum or other forms of humanitarian protection. And so we are able to provide forensic evaluations, which help to document the impact of torture and trauma that individuals have experienced. And you know, it's also been documented that when individuals have these forensic evaluations, the likelihood that they would be granted protection actually goes up. So in addition to the forensic evaluations, um, Nick, like he already mentioned, provides some primary care to survivors who are referred to him. I provide um, some counseling services and sort of wrapped in in this whole model is this idea of training. And so we know that in, you know, in Baltimore, like the need for these services really like far, far outpaces what we can provide. Mm -hmm. And so we wanna make sure that we can provide 
really quality training, supervision, even speaking about belonging, um, collaboration, community, for people who wanna engage in this work, engage in it in a meaningful way, um, engage in it in a way where they can also feel that, you know, we're, we're really trying to build something powerful and do it well, because sometimes folks can get thrown into this work and it's that whole like sink or swim and, you know, you're really not sure exactly kind of what's happening next. And we wanna be able to provide some of that community for, where folks know that, you know, here, you will have people that you can work with, you know, the issues that come up, you know, you'll have at least several people to actually be able to run it by, um, get some feedback on it and just continue to grow. Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything? Oh, we also have peer support groups and art groups and all sorts of things like that for young people. Awesome. No, that was, that was excellent news. <laughs> awesome. So Nuvnik talked about belonging. I feel so beautifully like in communion with others that really struck, struck me. Um, and, and again, we've talked to so many different people and it seems like every time we talk to somebody, somebody comes up with a new word, which I love. <laughs> um, Nuf, is there anything you would add to sort of your sense of belonging or thinking about that word belonging? Yeah. You know, every time you say the word belonging, I feel like a part of, like, I have like a slight exhale and like mm. a slight relaxing of the body. And so I think there's a little bit of that sense that you know, hopefully we're creating a space where folks can feel that they can release a little bit of tension. Mm -hmm. And especially with the communities that we're working in, I think Nick put it so beautifully in talking about how they're coming, people are coming from all over the world. And if there's a way that, you know, when they're sitting with us, they can feel a sense of familiarity. You know, obviously, you know, even when it comes to belonging, you know, nobody ever 100% belongs in every single situation. There's so many complex parts that we all have. And I kind of, and I feel that it's different parts of ourselves that see that familiarity, that recognize each other. And I don't, I don't know, I think just provide some of that space to just exhale a little bit. Mm. See, you did it again. I love that. <laughs> now we have two new ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so many more words, right? Like communion and then just the physical release, which actually... Um, I'm going to pick up that breadcrumb nuff because that's something that Carrie and I were talking about a little bit earlier this morning. We had a guest recently who was talking about the physical feelings of belonging. Like she has physical feelings in her body and you kind of just picked up on that a little bit. And I wanted to ask about that in the context of your work, because when I was reading a little bit about heal, um, Nick, I think it was you in the article who was saying that there's this clear connection between physical health and mental health. And yet sometimes they're separate you know, in clinical practice, but for you all, it was really important to bring those two things together in a kind of a seamless integrated way. And so I'm curious about where belonging fits. So there's this physical manifestation Nuf, that you just described. Where do you see this? Or do you see this in your clients? Do you see any physical manifestations of belonging, maybe when it's there or when it's not? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we see very commonly in, uh, in sort of all populations who have experienced serious trauma, but, um, you know, especially in the population that we see in our clinic is what we call sort of somaticization. Um, so it's when the effect cumulatively of stress and trauma, you know, sort of manifests in physical symptoms. Um, and that can be headaches, it can be chronic pain, it can be, um, you know, all sorts of other uh, sort of uh, unique complaints that 
um, we obviously have to take very seriously and investigate for you know organic or so-called organic ideologies. But you know, but the reality is they're very real uh, to the person who's experiencing them, and oftentimes we have observed that they are related to you know levels of stress and unresolved um, you know trauma and and that's I think testament to the the real connection between mind and body, which. You know, for anyone who who practices seriously in this space, it's it's a pretty uh, sort of obvious connection, but it's one that is unfortunately not really um, always prioritized in, in programs or in treatment. Uh, often, we see completely sort of siloed approaches to this work, um, depending on professional background. So, you know, with the folks who trained as doctors through. Um, medical schools in the United States kind of doing their own thing, and then folks who trained in uh, mental health, either as social workers or psychologists or counselors. Um, and often there are sort of silos within those categories, right? Um, and so everybody, you know, has this shared goal of, of trying to uh, do what's best for this population. But what's best is really to kind of come together and, and really think more holistically we know we know this. this is why folks are so hungry for alternative forms of medical care sometimes is because they want to be treated like a you know a whole human being mm -hmm. um yet we are so poorly delivering that at the healthcare system so that's you know one of the very starting points of, of my collaboration with NUF was really just trying to think about how can we do this differently how can we you know come together in a real way um you know, across all sorts of challenges, and we'll talk about those, I'm sure, you know, the, the fact that we have four different institutions, you know, as part of this collaborative is, is not an easy thing to figure out logistically, but it is what we thought was best and what has been best um, as we've seen it. So, uh, yeah, yeah I, would, I would sort of say there's, there's no separating the two. Yeah, thank you. I'm wondering, you know, Nick, you said that for people who are doing this work seriously, there's it's obvious that there's a mind body connection and yet all the things happen systems create silos and then silos within silos i'm curious just to sort of get a little bit more insight in the story then how is it that you enough ended up creating something that's really different than what we typically see like can you give us a little insight into that like how it, how it came to be you want to take that Sure. This is actually a fun story because cool. um, Nick and I, we've known each other for about 10 years now. So we were both at the International Rescue Committee in Baltimore at the mm. same time we overlapped. I was um, building out our maternal child health program and Nick was was working on the public health team. Nick, what was your what was it? What was the project you're working on again? I was working with Casey on um, our friend, our mutual friend, okay. Casey Spikeman, who's been sort of our magical connector over the years, but uh, <laughs> on developing a partnership between the School of Medicine at, at Johns Hopkins, where I was a medical student, and the Special Health Needs Program. So um, trying to essentially create a way for medical students to come together and support uh, newly arrived refugees and refugee families in navigating the healthcare system and providing health mentorship and advocacy. Yeah. So, so then 10 years ago, we, we were we were working at the same place, but our work didn't necessarily always directly 
overlap. So we were kind of like two ships kind of always passing each other by, but we always, but I always heard about Nick. Um, Nick, I'm sure, you know, my name also always came up with Casey. Um, our cubicle shared a wall. So <laughs> um, there was that. And then after the IRC, right, that was 10 years ago. And so after that, I went on for my PhD in counseling. Um, at that point, then Nick, he had finished medical school. He was starting residency. And we both sort of landed back in Baltimore at around a similar time, actually. He started back up at Hopkins. I started at Loyola. And independently, we were both, you know, working on this track. We, 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 we both wanted to work with this population. We both, you know, Nick had already started this clinic up with some of the clients that he was working with. He was already doing some cross-border evaluations as well. And for me at Loyola, I was starting a lot of trainings around it, starting to see individual clients. And so Casey, who is our professional matchmaker, um, did put us back in contact together for a talk. And during that talk, there were just so many, I guess, coming back to that idea of belonging, there were just so many consistent overlap after overlap after overlap, as well as I think a good match in like excitement and energy levels. And so from there, we just merged our efforts. And once we merged it, it really took off. And I'll just add to that, you know, it's just... I think further testament to the power of belonging that both Danuf and I, you know, once we found each other, I, it was just like a force multiplier. You know, yeah. I, I think having a partner in this work, especially when you're not, you know, around anyone else who's really got the same passion and you're just trying to kind of bulldoze something through by yourself, it can be very isolating. Um, and finding that person who sort of shares the same uh, commitment and is willing to kind of be that um, companion, you know, at all hours of the day, <laughs> trying to make something happen. I, it was just such a uh, such a game changer, and and really, you know, it went from us sort of doing our own things and sort of slow and measured ways to to this really um, kind of dynamic and uh, <laughs> in some ways unruly growth that uh, has has you know both. Have been extremely rewarding and also challenging, but but you know it's uh, it's something that we could have not done uh, at all without each other. Yeah. I would definitely echo that. I mean, yeah. I don't know about everybody else, but I always have a half dozen like <laughs> unfinished projects, great ideas, <laughs> like just lying around. Um, but it really takes somebody else that's able to walk with you, um, go like I, go through these steps of finding funding, create, creating a team, pulling them together creating projects. Um, it's a lot of, it is a lot of work. Um, I would also say though, that the bonus is when you actually find somebody that you can enjoy doing it with. So, mm -hmm. you know, our, like our work phone calls are, you know, mostly, you know, touching base, catching up on this, but also, I don't know, just a moment for us also just to breathe and say, oh, that was really intense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think on a, on a, Obviously, the work that Brian and I do is not in the important work of refugees and the trauma, but a lot of what you're saying resonates because I feel similarly that, you know, uh, Brian and I found each other and sort of just clicked, right? That sort of research process and doing the work. And I love, Nick, your characterization of this idea of a force multiplier yeah. when it's sort of that, that really resonated. So thank you for that. So related, I feel like you're describing these different sort of pockets that all overlap of belonging. You talked about bringing the two of you together 
bringing the four pieces of heel together. That feels like a pocket. And then you have this huge and incredibly diverse community of family, refugee families and clients and patients. And so what I'm really curious about is, do you, are you noticing, like if we think about the markers or signals of belonging, like new, if you talked about sort of being able to exhale, right in your work, is there a uniqueness to the belonging you see among and with your clients and patients? Is there a uniqueness to the, to the heel group? I'm just curious, like, cause you're walking in multiple, very diverse, you know, environments and climates. And so just wondering what you're noticing about belonging and what it looks like in those different places. Yeah. I, I feel like I'd say because our clients are there, I mean, they're forced migrants. They are in a transition space. Mm -hmm. And here in the US, our immigration system is so broken. And so sometimes folks are, you know, they are sometimes waiting years mm. for their case to be heard. And I think there's something about being in such a, in just such a place of transition where people I think are, are searching for places of belonging and they are, you know, just searching for just different manifestations of home mm -hmm. and for that familiarity. And we see it in the, in the evaluations that we do. So, you know, our evaluations, they're hours long. We're going through somebody's entire torture and trauma history. You know, it's not something that clients look forward to doing. Um, for many, they, they have a lot of reluctance even at first when they come in to really just share their whole story but what we find is that you know in helping to build some of that familiarity helping to put them at ease um creating an environment that is supportive um an environment that does see them i don't know we we see our clients sort of ease up a little bit um we we can we, we, we can feel their trust which we really treasure and we really honor that and so in whatever way it is that we can help make this transition just feel a little bit more stable, constant, um, I don't know, I think, I'd say for me, that's where it's at. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think belonging takes so many different, you know, forms. I, I love that you have this podcast centered around it. I think it's one of those concepts like, you know, vulnerability with Brene Brown, like there's just like some things that we have taken for granted as being, you know, important to human connection that we haven't fully digested or analyzed. And um, I, I think that the, you know, the moments that I remember feeling that um, the most with clients are really just very normal moments of connection. Uh, you know, I had one client who really was into you know african literature and i am also and we just talked about uh shared you know love of and gugi watiango and it was just like a complete game changer it went from being something where you know the client was feeling less comfortable to you know the fact that i had that reference uh and you know could kind of talk about <laughs> this story that we both knew um really sort of transformed the whole nature of the interaction and you know I, I think that's why it takes a little bit of a unique background i think to do this work sometimes um i think both Nuf and i i mean i think many people can do this work but Nuf and i have um shared 
very eclectic backgrounds. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. we've gone all over the world. We've been, um, you know, kind of uh, affected by waterlust at various points in our, our lives or still are. And uh, we've explored, you know, um, way beyond sort of the, the domains of our professional backgrounds. Um, and, and I think that has been so helpful in, in creating those moments because, you know, it's really hard to to get that. A lot of people have stress related to just being in the presence of a healthcare provider. It has mm-hmm. often been a negative experience in the past, um, whether they've been in the United States or elsewhere. Uh, we don't have the best track record of making people feel comfortable. Um, so, you know, whatever we could do to to kind of uh, establish that sort of human level with folks and um, and make people feel heard and uh, and understood, I think that can be a really transformative experience as Luke was alluding to. And people come come in oftentimes sort of dreading the encounter. and uh, you know, in some cases, it could be, you know, it could be really tough through the end, but uh, in in many cases, we do get feedback from attorneys. Um, you know, that basically is, is very positive in an unexpected way. You know, folks will say, I, I just needed to get that off my chest. And and often they just don't feel the ability to do that with loved ones, even ones who know, uh, you know, what has happened. They don't like to feel like they're a burden. You know, these are people who have have been able to, you know, to escape the most heinous of circumstances, who have really established this resilience that um, is extremely valuable, you know, but at the same time has has usually come at a cost of having to really rely on themselves. Um, and, uh, and they're not used to, um, to sort of being able to trust other people, they're not used to necessarily, um, you know, sharing with other people that has often been uh, a source of danger, you know, uh, especially for for clients who have been persecuted because of their identities and so forth. So there's just so much to kind of navigate at once. Um, and and I, and I think that's the the part that's honestly the most challenging, but also the most rewarding for, for both of us. Mm-hmm. To build off of that, it, you know, the stories that we hold for people, like Nick said, some of them are stories that they've they've never told anybody. They've never told um, even just the people that they're closest to. And that that has come up in a number of our evaluations, but I also think of my individual counseling clients. And it's exactly like Nick said, you know, there is this sense of being a burden then on your loved ones, um, or, you know, even seeing like, like a sense of shame and, you know, opening up to such a degree with people. And what we like to do is, you know, create this space for people where they, where, you know, this is a space where they can, hopefully that they can open up without some of those same feelings that they're burdening somebody or that they, or that there's, that there's a lot of shame in it. Another thing too is, in in connecting people to to another community of to other other survivors and that takes so many different manifestations that can happen in our group support so you know we we've had various groups and we're starting up some more this year where folks can connect in a group format but even in our individual work so whether it's the evaluations but also particularly i'm thinking of my counseling work sometimes even just alluding to how the experiences that a client is sharing with you 
in many ways just mirrors a lot of what other folks have also shared. There's something about that that also builds this sense of connection and, and understanding. I'm thinking also of one of my individual clients in which, you know, we could share how it's, you know, it can be really devastating when, you know, something is, you know, something's happening back home. Um, you know, there's just another like round of like, like persecution and flare ups and all that stuff. And how, you know, it can be so frustrating sometimes when people ask, you know, oh my gosh, how is your family doing? And it's one of those questions where it's weird if you don't ask, but then when you do ask, it's actually really quite painful as well because it's such a difficult question to answer. And I've heard that from clients, I've experienced that personally. And it's one of those things where in just making that, in making some of those connections, it just helps people feel less alone because sometimes that experience of, wow, oh, like, I don't know why this is just, um, why this is so upsetting. And then creating that space to really process it. It's like, oh, well, of course it's upsetting. Um, and connecting to other people as well. This is so neat. And you're talking about so many relationships, you know, even to people that your clients don't know. And I love that. And it sounds like there's such strength in the relationships and that you all are so intentional about setting the conditions for belonging, even if those aren't the words that you use. That's what we're hearing, I think, in, in your descriptions. I'm curious about your concept of belonging to self. So we've talked about kind of belonging to others, you all facilitating belonging. Where do you see or how do you see belonging to self in your clients? Oh, we stumped them. Um, I know. So, <laughs> I'm a little lost on what belonging to self means. If you could tell me a little more about that, but Nick, I don't know. You're if you talking about, I, I'm, the way that I'm understanding this is yeah. clients feeling like they are sort of, they have a belonging internally, you know, yeah. that's, mm -hmm. I think such a, it's a challenging question in this population in particular, because a lot of times folks have been through really this complete sense of, um, uh, dehumanization, you know, folks doing things to them that they have no control over, uh, whether it's sexual violence or um, torture or any sort of, you know, <laughs> abuse. And uh, and a common reaction is really to kind of depersonalize um, and to, to kind of uh, separate out um, from, you know, your body. So this is a very challenging question because, you know, often you will have to sort of explore this space of, you know, feeling like you're attached to your body, which is, mm. is something that <laughs> is not like an immediately <clears throat> familiar topic for most people, but it's one that is, uh, you know, I think at the core of a lot of the psychological evaluations that we do. So, I mean, I, I don't know if you have more to add, Nuf, but it, it takes a long time, I think, uh, for, for folks to really uh, establish that sense of belonging, um, you know, internally, uh, just, you know, in, in this, in the midst of this prior experience of having that robbed of them in many ways, and then having that compounded by the fact that they are now in a completely unfamiliar environment, separated from, 
you know, those things that give us familiar. I mean, there's a reason that nostalgia is so rewarding to us, right? It's, it's sort of what gives us the sense of self. And when you're removed from all of the familiar, all of the things that trigger those memories of when you were, you know, forming an identity or, um, you know, developing as, as a self, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when you're, when you're robbed of those and then, you know, uh, to add to that, you know, you've experienced things that have made you not want to sort of uh, be connected to your body and, and then put in a completely new foreign environment mm-hmm. and oftentimes treated poorly in that environment, I would add, um, because of the xenophobia and prejudice uh, that has become just worse in recent years in this country. So, you know, those things, I, I think, make it so challenging. Um, and I think it's probably a lot of what uh, Newf works on and sort of therapy with clients. But I'll, I'll let you kind of take over Newf. <laughs> so for me, I see belonging as such a relational exercise. And it's, it's hard to, to separate out that relational component of things. And with the clients that we work with, they are, you know, in some ways, you know, there's there 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 there's places where they feel like they belong. Um, but like Nick said, there's also like a very real pain and trauma from being rejected from place mm-hmm. from places that were home. Um, one thing that a lot of clients will say kind of consistently is that oftentimes, like the worst even psychological pain that they've experienced has been from people that they know. And so, you know, for a lot of our clients who, you know, might have experienced multiple stressors, you know, war on so many different levels, it's the war that's inside of the home that for them, for so many, they talk about how that really does leave just the largest impact because for them, they say, you know, it, it was a connection that was so familiar. And they say, you know, this wasn't a stranger. This was somebody who knew me, like they knew me. And so it really is rebuilding a lot of what it means to belong in different contexts. And, you know, one of the things in the U.S. is that depending on the community in which they're a part of, you know, they they can feel like a double marginalization where, you know, they might <clears throat> feel marginalized within their country or the community of origin, but then also feel marginalized here within communities. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes finding that sense of home can be, I mean, it can be such a process and, and part of that belonging, you know, one of the things that does stick out to me is that for a lot of our clients, um, the role of like spirituality and faith can be really quite powerful. For some, of course, it's not. Um, For some, it can really be quite a source of strength, or, or sorry, quite a source of stress. But for, but for many of the clients that I work with, they do talk about how that for them, even in when they describe some of the most horrendous experiences, they will describe that sense of feeling a belongingness with, within their faith and with God. And they, they, they can speak really I mean, so powerfully and eloquent about how I've had many, many clients from all different countries, all different faith traditions who have said that that relationship to them is actually the only one where they felt any belonging. Mm-hmm. And so it just adds an interesting element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I appreciate both of you describing 
this situation because it's just it just it's really an extreme situation and experience of this you know it's really it's sad to say like a doubling down of this idea of thwarted belonging right it's like yeah. you're you're being rejected internally self right because of the physical disconnection often of the trauma as nick described it and then coming to a country that is unfamiliar right so you don't even have that to as an anchor point so it's it just really speaks i mean and i know you both know this just from your experience it just speaks to you know the critical role that our environment right our relationships and our environment play and so what you said before about creating space becomes all that more important for you know for these individuals so um yeah i just i really appreciate that i was curious um Noof, if you could speak to it a little bit, you mentioned earlier, um, sort of as a side note, that you also or offer peer support groups, and then you mentioned art, and I know you have some some work in art. And we just recently had a guest on the podcast talking about music <laughs> and belonging, and again, like a whole new language, right, is opened up around thinking about belonging. So I'm wondering, what role does your art, like, what have you seen in terms of integrating art into this work or similar work? I'm just given everything that you both have just said, like, can you speak to that just a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I love this question. Um, <laughs> so for me, in my counseling work, I draw a lot from expressive arts um, therapies. Mm. Even just personally, it is my own way of I think, processing a lot of what, of just the, of the work that I'm engaging in as well. And so last summer, we had so I, there's so many there's so many adjectives to this title but it was a peer support art-based um peer support art-based group for unaccompanied refugee minors who are from central america mm -hmm. and the idea behind that group was that we wanted to create a place where unaccompanied refugee minors who were living here in the u.s that they were fairly isolated already and we wanted to create a place where they could feel connected to other people who might have experienced a very similar journey as they have. And so in order to do so, we used art as the vehicle, which means that it was, you know, in the end, you know, it created these really beautiful murals within the group, but that was the end product. And the end product was beautiful, it was great, the pictures are wonderful, but for us, it was more just that process. Mm. Because for us, you know, this was just our, our point for connection. And so when we were, you know, as a really basic thing, talking about mark making. So, right, just, you know, taking some kind of a pencil, charcoal, um, marker, paint, whatever, what, what have you to paper. For us, we related that to this idea of expressing emotions through mark making. When we talked about different types of colors and color theory, again, we related it back to individuals' experiences. We pulled from a lot of Central American art. And so for us, art was, it was the vehicle, it was the modality to really get us to that place where they can connect to one another, express themselves to each other, share with one another, have fun with one another. I really loved reading that part of the evaluations and people just said, oh, this was really fun. I like this. Um, and this year we are starting up some more peer support groups. One is going to be for young women, another one is going to be for a young men's group. And then we're hopefully going to be starting up in a couple of months, um, one for LGBTQ plus um, survivors as well. And so I think, 
I'm not sure exactly what the art component for that will be, but there'll probably be some art component. We already saw it coming up in the women's group curriculum, actually. Um, but I feel like it's such an extraordinary medium. I love it. Mm. And it transcends so much language and culture. It's just such an amazing way to connect. When we were talking with our guest about music, when we asked her to define belonging, she used the word safety and security. And her that definition has been with me through this entire conversation that we're having today. Um, she was talking about the presence of state safety and security. And I just hear so much about the effects of the absence of those things in, in this conversation. And Nuf, until you shared about like the real trauma within the homes, I was thinking more systemically and um, you know, the fact that your clients are asylum seekers and refugees. And I was thinking kind of bigger picture, but then when you shared that sometimes that they say that the worst trauma is in those places that maybe should have been the most safe and most secure. I just feel all these connections. And I, I had the privilege of hearing you talk a little bit more extensively about your work in a different workshop that we did. And I was so taken by the process, the kind of the pre-work and like the, the through work of what you just described. And I wonder if you're just giving the clients, the children, just moments of safety and security. And if that's, isn't fostering just these like slices of belonging you know, through the process. Yeah. And I would say that when it comes to safety and security, I I would agree. I think that those are, those are so important. And, and, it, and one, one thing I would uh, caution though, is that, so sometimes from in my field in counseling, people speak about safety so flippantly mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, well, you know, the first step of counseling is establish safety check okay next and it's one of those things where establishing safety is something which is such an ongoing process it's so contextual mm-hmm. and and really i mean real true safety is not going to come until these systems that are creating war persecution and the racism here that we're seeing are abolished that's when that that's when real true safety is going to come and so here you know in thinking about how we can build these pockets of relative safety or there's it's so it's so important and you're and you're right that's where so much of the pre-work comes because sometimes i hear and again sometimes it's folks who are so well-intentioned they're like oh we just want to go into these refugee communities you know throw out some throw some art supplies there and see what people can make and oh it's you know it's one of those things where art is so powerful and because it is so powerful that also means that folks have to be I don't know, really aware of how far they might be kind of pulling people in and drawing people in and sometimes at the expense of things like safety. Um, one other thing I'll say too is, you know, in terms of stuff that happens in the home and a lot of the violence that people see in the homes, that also very much does have such a systemic component to it. And so it's it's hard to separate the two. And so I would say that a lot of the violence that they see in the home, whether it's because of gender-based violence, whether it's because of their um, sexual orientation, so much of that is bolstered systemically as well. Oh my goodness. I feel like I'm looking at the time and want to be really sensitive to everybody's time. Um, so I think we'll we'll um, start to wrap up, but I feel like if we can talk them into it, Brianne, we might have to have <laughs> enough and Nick back because there's so many more threads that I could pull yeah. on these questions. Like for example, we didn't even 
get to dig in a little bit more into like Nick, your work as a doctor, right? Like a medical doctor working with these individuals. And I know if you mentioned the safety and the ongoing work and the pre-work, and I would just love maybe at another time, Nick, to hear more about like, what does that look like when you said from the beginning that many of these individuals come with either terrible experiences with health professionals or no experience. And so I just can imagine the work that you must need to do to get them to a place where you can really support them with the expertise that you have. I would imagine yeah, it's, a... <laughs> it's a whole, it's a whole nother episode. I feel oh, like. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we can have you back, but in, in what we think is good um, interview style, we always like the last question to be an opportunity for our guests to share anything, you know, last thoughts that you want to share, either that we didn't ask you, that you didn't get to say when we asked you. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold the space for both of you to share um, maybe a last tidbit or something. Yeah, well, I, I think we've spoken a lot about sort of belonging as it pertains to our, our clients. And I, I think that's that's great and, and appropriate. I think the other piece of belonging that Noop and I also have to work with all the time is uh, creating that um, among our, our volunteers and trainees and then also our partners. And so there are so many threads really <laughs> but there's a lot of juggling of belonging when you're doing this work um i think it's been very helpful that you know noop and i come from backgrounds of having gone through training ourselves obviously and um you know and having also had the experience of working at uh nonprofit organizations ngos um so we sort of understand uh, to some degree, what a lot of our community partners, um, you know, have to struggle with and the, the perspective that they are, um, facing when they are partnering with, with us and, and some of the, the, you know, complexities that come with that. Um, but, you know, I do think that this conversation has, for me, sparked so many ideas about how to be more mindful of that, uh, that piece of what we do. It's like, we've been doing it. And we haven't really been talking about it as much as we should, you know, I don't, I don't know if you feel the same way, <laughs> but like, I'm just thinking about belonging now in all of these different domains, um, <laughs> what we were already doing, you know, and how we could be more purposeful for it. So I just, you know, I, I think uh, I just have had a really great time, you know, having this discussion with y'all and it's, it's really sparked so much. I think that Noop and I are going to be uh ruminating over and uh discussing in in the the days and weeks to come so so thank you for having yeah, us absolutely i guess um for me too it, i it's so it's interesting how belonging really is such a common thread in all of this work uh, it's really everywhere i think it's so fascinating and i guess to go off of what nick said i'm also really thinking a lot about our trainees the people who come and they work with us and they complete these evaluations for us and the different ways in which we are hopefully setting up a space where they feel like they belong, that they can contribute, that they can again hold space and, and provide something that's so powerful for the clients that we're serving. We're also recognizing that a lot of our trainees and a lot of the volunteers that might work with us, that 
the experiences that they've had in their own lives and in their own communities might also just mirror a lot of what's happening in our clients' lives. And recognizing how that is that's such an important, important aspect to also consider in terms of belonging, in terms of doing all this work. Absolutely. That's why I think we have to have a part two, because I wrote down here when, when Brianne asked about belonging to self, mm-hmm. I'm actually very curious to hear, because in our own research, we recognize that facilitators and their sense of self and volunteers sense of self matters tremendously to what you put out into the world around belonging. And so would just love to hear more about sort of the work you do with volunteers, with the organizations and the other partners. So maybe, maybe this is a to be continued. So, <laughs> so um, Brianne and I just want to thank both of you for being on the podcast, for carving out some time in your very, very busy <laughs> lives um, to be with you. So please know we are incredibly grateful for your time, your expertise, and really the work that you're both putting out into the world. Just really, really tremendous. So thank you both Nick and Nuf. Well, thank you so much. It's really a joy to be having this conversation and really appreciative of your work as well and uh, excited to take this and and run with it. And <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Carrie Borkowski, here with Nuf, Nick, and Brianne. Thanks, everybody. Be well and be good to each other. Take care. Your last year. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.